Hello, it's Pete here, and welcome to EdTech Innovators. Have you ever considered your own identity? Have you ever written about your relationship with technology? Well, this week, Daniel Clark, learning technologist and academic, will be talking to us about autoethnography. In the first part, he'll try to define autoethnography. Please enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think when we were first introduced to it on the on the PhD program, one of the key things I found useful was to think about um, the distinction between autoethnography and reflection, because um, because they are kind of different things. And obviously, you can do you can do reflective writing of all kinds, you know, to do which which is which is very valuable. But um, but autoethnography is where you're writing about yourself, but you are aiming to connect this with scholarly debates and, and scholarly issues. So, you, so you're writing about your own experience in order to shed light on some particular ideas or, or concepts um, rather than reflection is more kind of, you know, what can I learn from, from this experience itself? And you're not necessarily looking to connect it externally. I think that's the distinction I found useful. Yeah, so people who um, have got a story to tell but haven't been able to tell it yet, okay. um, they could be mistakenly drawn towards autoethnography, couldn't they? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think that I think there could be a feeling that you know it's all really easy. It's just um, you know, it's just sit down and write whatever's in your head and, and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, that 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 could well be an element of it. That could be that could be a starting point of it. But it's um, it's it's not. Um, you know that's that's not the end point. You, you you've got to kind of make that connection with with existing, like any academic writing, right, with existing literature and identify what your research questions are, and then actually bring out something that would be of of use and of interest to others. Yeah. So in terms of what's interested you and what's useful to others, um, so obviously this autobiographical element can't be removed, of course. You know, it's a starting point, as it were, isn't it? So that's that's all good. Um, yeah. But we're interested in several things, really. So one of them is performativity. So this idea of performing a role as you, if you like, transition from somebody who um, isn't that confident around technology to somebody who is and the processes that um, that lead you there. So um, how would you talk about that idea of performance and performativity? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I suppose... Um... I suppose I suppose what what interested me and one of the one of the areas the paper came out of was the um, was the fact that there isn't actually a lot of research around um, how does the process of digital literacy happen and in particular you know what's the impact on identity and um, and and as I started as I sort of wrote uh, when, to be honest when I wrote the, the sort of the initial um, sort of drafts of, of of this research the um, I started to look at the literature on identity, but um, but it was some of the things that then got picked up in review that that it you know it really needed to be more fleshed out and more developed. And I really yeah, there is so much research around identity, so many theories and, and ideas that I had to kind of um, be a bit clearer about well, be a lot clearer about what what I meant by identity and the, and the approach I was taking to identity. And and sort of reading around that area, uh, came across um, came across the work of Irving Goffman and of Judith Butler, um, um, who in in very different ways um, uh, thought about identity as as being as being some sort of performance, or to put it another way, 
uh, I think I think they both feel that identity is something you do. It's not something you have. And we often talk about identity as being some, something that you have, you know, um, and and I found it much more compelling um, and much more convincing to think about identity as something you do and that gets reinforced. And that fitted very nicely with the idea that identity was very much related to digital literacy because digital literacy is, is kind of something you do. It's it's um, it's it's a repeated uh, performance of certain acts and, and that, that's how you build it up and that's how that's how these thinkers think about identity too. So one of the, one of the ways in which this performance is um, experienced is through, as you put it, cultural and social symbols. Mm. So you, you talked about things like the figure of the geek and the tech-savvy person. Yeah. Um, so obviously you've moved a long way since this paper was published a couple of years ago, but how would you talk about that now, these uh, you know, social and cultural symbols that uh, sort of represent the figure of the, the geek or the person who's confident around technology? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I suppose there are a number of questions feeding into that. Um, one of the questions that I, I think I mentioned in, in the paper that, that that's really intrigued me is 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 why um, significant numbers of people will say things like, "Oh, I'm not very good with technology." Um, I, I think it's decreasing a little bit, um, but but you still do get that. And given you know even in, in professional settings, I'm talking about, um, and and given the importance of technology and the fact that that's not going to go away. Um, anytime soon, as far as any of us can tell. It, it seems to me a, a sort of quite strange statement to make, um, to, to, to label yourself in that way. And, and in a way, that's kind of what I was trying to address with the whole of this paper, really. Um, but it, but it strikes me that one of the reasons might be some of the stereotypes that there are, uh, the, the cultural symbols there are around um, people who are good with technology. I mean, if I take an extreme example, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of the, the sitcom, the IT crowd. Um, Know, which uh, obviously a little bit old now, but um, but still absolutely love it. Um, and and if you, you know, the, IT, the 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 people who work in IT who are depicted there are kind of you know totally socially inadequate and and so on. And there's lots of comedy that comes out of that. Um, and if and if that's kind of our, our cultural idea of this is the person who's good with technology, then perhaps it's not surprising that people don't want to be identified that way and don't want to, don't want to adopt that performance, if you like. Yeah, and the IT crowd, I, I agree, it's, it's brilliant comedy. It works on so many levels too, doesn't it? Because I think that uh, for me, for the non-tech person, uh, it's about the way that your workmates collide with the outside world. So all of the in-jokes and, and so on, all of the mm. esoteric um, comments, you know, references that you have, uh, once you hit the outside world, they just become bizarre, don't they? And uh, yes. completely unintelligible. Um, so, um, okay, so you, in terms of your own identity, um, you would you describe yourself as i'm in danger of uh, becoming like uh, like richard madeley here so I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to check myself here to um but um would you describe yourself as an evangelist a tech evangelist that is um so so that's one of the um one of the descriptors i used in the in the um paper um but i because I, I think what struck me um, going through the going through the blog posts and doing doing the research on that was that was that at times I was a tech evangelist and I think there is sometimes a, an undercurrent particularly in in sort of academic learning technology circles that there's this when when learning technologists get together sometimes there are conversations along the lines of you know there's all this technology and it could make things so much better and why won't people use it you know it's kind of you know and then part, <laughs> part of the job of the learning technologist is to try and get it get people over that line and you know let's 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 be evangelists and let's let's help people do that um 
but actually particularly you know the sort of sort of a bit later in the journey um I, there's this there's also this um i think what i call techno skeptic um streak as well this this kind of well actually um you know and and this is more obvious now perhaps than than when i was uh, writing this sort of stuff in my blog a few years ago you know there, there's there's ways in which big tech is doing enormous harm to our society and and to our um our democracy and 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 so on so so there is an element of kind of um skepticism as well around being sold being offered something that is just the latest shiniest solution so i think i think they're both in there um so i'm not really answering your question am i would, would i yeah well this is brilliant so um i mean i'll pick you up on, on big I'll, we'll develop the idea of big data uh, in a second that's okay because we, we could talk for hours about that mm. um but this is really interesting because it, it it's similar to my the autobiographical part of my early auto autoethnographic journey uh so I would describe myself as a tech agnostic, not a tech evangelist, but sometimes people would perceive me as a tech evangelist and I wasn't very comfortable with it because I'm not, I'm not that techy, <laughs> so I'm not a learning technologist. Um, so I had this kind of duality uh, that I was wrestling with and the beautifully therapeutic thing about the autoethnographic process was that it helped me sort that out and, and found a way that, that, that suited me. So it, is there something you could say about that? almost therapeutic element of autoethnography that, that you know it is an iterative journey that leads you towards a, a place where you feel better about certain things yeah i mean it's, it certainly helped me to make sense of the journey um and, and a number of things only became clear to me kind of doing this research and, and going back through the blog posts that i've written so this kind of this this kind of duality of you know is technology good is technology bad um type thing um, really came out um and actually, one of the things that that came out as well that, that I that I do mention is the, going back through it again. I was almost self-consciously performing the role of someone who is technologically or digitally literate or, or tech savvy. That actually keep keeping a blog was I can see this with hindsight was was kind of my idea of that's what people do, <laughs> you know, when when <laughs> when they're into this sort of thing. And you know, they they, they use Twitter and they um you know you you make references to the matrix and you know this is a bit, and, and there's, there's a bit of kind of I, th I think I was almost I was almost um uh you know trying to um uh, to perform in that way uh, and it worked actually I mean I'm not I'm, the, one of the um one of the, the sort of misconceptions around particularly someone like Goffman is uh, sometimes people people interpret him as saying that um, if you if you're performing something, it's very inauthentic, and you know that's not the real you. That's just sort of a front you're pushing on, and that's not that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that this is who we are. <laughs> you know, you know yeah. this is the real you. Your performance is the real you. There are multiple mm -hmm. performances, you know, depending on where you are and what setting you're in, and, and so on. But 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 that that's what your identity is, and um, and, and but there even more so actually. Um, so. Um, yeah, so so I'm not I'm not trying I'm not sort of uh, putting myself down in that respect. I think I think I think I've um I've I've gone through this conscious adoption of, of a particular persona that that you know kind of has worked for want of a better term. Yeah. Okay. So um, given what you've alluded to before about big data, and um, I'm, I'm trying to 
make this fit in with your own uh, autoethnographic journey. Um, but your attitudes towards big data, not, not all of them are positive, are they? Some of them are skeptical. And again, there's quite a lot of crossover with what I've been writing about recently about things like positivist ideas and, um, and uh, a challenge to the way I put it, the, the tyranny of big data and, um, and instrumentalism and, and, and so on. So um, yeah, so what, as people say these days, what's your beef, man? <laughs> um yeah i mean i mean i guess that there's been um i mean i mean there's been some really good stuff written on this i mean i think i think about um kathy o'neill's book um weapons of math destruction um for example that's a really good example of it where, where someone who is a data scientist just kind of takes apart what data can and can't do uh or, or what it's being used to do that perhaps is is um you know is is not what, what we would like it to do so i mean i, I think she has examples of um you know uh, some, some teachers in america um you know get, getting fired because the, the algorithm says they're not performing properly because the algorithm is crunching certain data to do with student student performance and that sort of thing and actually it's you know this this is a if you look at it any human way it's an absurd thing to do because it's it reflects the fact that teachers are perhaps working with deprived kids or you know something like that so um I mean that's 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 kind of a very um, extreme example, but there's a there's a definite um, risk, isn't there? If we if we um, if if we if we outsource things to the algorithm, um, which which we do in all kinds of ways, then we have to be very very careful um, about how we do it, and and there's a, there's a real risk that decisions will get made that are very dysfunctional or. Um, or immoral or, or things we wouldn't we really wouldn't want doing um and I've, well, I have, a, I have a quote for you, which I think is worth reading out, actually. It's from uh, my synthesis, synthesis statement for my PhD, which I'm, I'm ne nearly, which is nearing completion. So it's from Gittleman in 2013. Um, this shared sense of starting with data often leads to an unnoticed assumption that data are transparent, that information is self-evident, the fundamental stuff of truth itself. If we're not careful, our zeal for more and more data can become a faith in their neutrality and autonomy their objectivity so um i mean if you think about what's happening in education in many forms um and the acceleration of that through technologies like like blockchain and so on um we could be forgiven for being a little bit scared but what's the argument against that do you think the argument against being scared yeah um, well, I mean, I think the argument against being scared is that there are undoubtedly enormous benefits um, that that could be potentially be harnessed from using um, using data. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a um, I'm, I'm a little bit into the kind of you know, data around around health and so on. Um, and you can't, you know, you can't get any more personal or intrusive than someone's vital signs and bio trackers and that sort of thing. And this is, I mean, this is an example of an area where we are undoubtedly going to see a huge, we are already seeing, and, and we'll see a lot more people, you know, tracking their own, um, uh, their hormone levels and their you know, heart rates and, and, and life signs and so on. Uh, and, and that's, you know, it's very personal data, but it is incredibly useful. Um, and, and armed with that sort of data, we could do all kinds of things, you know, physically, medically that could enormously enhance the quality of life. Um, that people live and the length of life um, that people have so there's undoubtedly you know there's undoubtedly benefits there um, so we should I, I don't think it's 
helpful attitude to to simply say we sh we shouldn't be gathering data we shouldn't be making decisions on the basis of big data um but yeah it, it's 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 a complex problem and it's one that i'm sure we'll be wrestling with for many years to come well that's right and i mean i said before that we could talk for hours about this so just to swing back to the frightened side if i if i'm if i may yeah. uh so i mean surely this uh preoccupation with big data wouldn't be happening if, if it weren't likely to be profitable and um, both during our lives and after our deaths if that makes sense so it's marketization that's driving this in the first place as opposed to an interest in in, in science or making people's health better um being provocative there yeah being, being provocative yes i've been yeah. watching too and, much I, richard Madeley, i'm afraid <laughs> and yes there's you know there's, there's money to be made and and there are and that you know the, the, there's any number of companies sort of waiting to, to do that um mm. but that you know that a lot of the people who are researching this sort of thing, you know, are academics that they're, 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 they're doing what they do because, um, you know, they want to find out more and they want the knowledge and I guess they want prestige and so on as well. It's not, it's not a disinterested thing. Um, but I, th I suppose the marketization is, is one aspect of it, but, um, but that is not the whole story and it doesn't mean there won't be, won't be benefits either. Yeah. Um, so I, th I think that, in, in a way, that debate that we're having now about big data, um, for me, that kind of crystallizes a, a great deal of the pleasure about this iterative journey of autoethnography, don't you think? That um, things start opening up to us as opposed to us leading us, lead, being led towards a, 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 you know, a sort of clear conclusion or, a, or assertion. No, absolutely. And, and um, I mean, I guess if I, if I, if I go back to that, that question I started with about why people describe themselves as, as not good with technology or why people... You know, aren't interested in learning this sort of thing or or, or resist it. It's it's there's not a simple answer to that. Um, it's um, sometimes I, I have I've even read academic papers where um, which are about you know, air, air quotes resistance to change and how resistance to change can be overcome. And I and I, th I think that's that's quite reductive um, to see it to see it in that way and to see it as a simple thing that you know people don't like change, therefore they're not going to learn new technology um you know there's an element of that but but i but i but i think there's there's a lot more to it than that and there's some quite complex psychology um around it which is what i guess what i was trying to unpack yes and it can, it can be weaponized too if in uh, certain situations like uh, industrial relations which we we won't go into now <laughs> of course but uh uh yeah so i'm going to if i may can i cherry pick some metaphors um from your paper sure if that's okay with you <clears throat> so um one of them which I love is the dinner party. Uh, so can I just read some of this? If that's okay. Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you were talking about uh, being a technology novice and uh, describing your first experience of a MOOC. Um, so maybe you could talk about your, your opinion on MOOCs in a few minutes' time. But you found sure. it so bewildering that you wrote an allegory comparing it to a civilized dinner party that had suddenly morphed into a large and noisy gathering. And uh, there were people like me having look a look around and wondering what the, on earth was going on. I caught a glimpse of a few of them. The trouble is, I never really knew. Um, sorry, I never, uh, I never really was one for large parties. And I suspect many of the others weren't either. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that that was. Um, well, I, I felt I felt compelled to kind of kind of turn that one into an allegory because um, it was. I mean, this is this is back in the days when you know MOOCs were still new and exciting right um and um and and given that we were studying uh MOOCs in that particular module on, on my master's course um the the OU Open University felt you know 
quite reasonably that actually we should run it as a MOOC because that's that's how we're going to get experience of it. Um, and and yeah, we, we there was this kind of small group of us in this this cohort who were sort of getting to know each other, and then and then suddenly you know all these other people piled into the forum and had loads of opinions and you know kind of lots of forum posts and and, and views and that sort of thing. Um, and that's what it felt like, you know. It, it felt like you know we we'd been having a nice chat and then and then suddenly the whole thing gets overrun. Um, I actually got a really nice um, response on that comment from uh, Professor Martin Weller at the Open University, who was who was lead teaching that particular module and you know he, he quite liked it too and he said uh, you know I'm, I'm not really a policy person either you know sort of sort of, <laughs> sort, of, sort of sort of have these have these have these feelings about MOOCs too um but uh, yeah so so I mean a, a MOOC I don't know MOOCs are almost part of the furniture now aren't they they're, they're sort of having been the sort of radical new thing that was going to transform higher education they've sort of I mean they're still around and people still do them but they've sort of become part of the part of the scene now haven't they <laughs> If, if MOOCs are furniture, what would they look like? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of furniture? Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's a sort of, uh, I don't know. Is, is, it, is it a sofa in the corner you can charge into if you want? <laughs> yeah. But, um, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, but, I mean, you asked about sort of, sort of experience of MOOCs. I mean, I mean I've done a few. Um, and... I don't know, it's, it's almost a truism really because this is what the research has shown as well. But I think the reality is for most MOOCs, if you're really going to get a lot of benefit out of them, you kind of have to be already some way down your education journey um, because it's it's there's just a load of stuff there and you've got to kind of sort out what's important, what isn't, and how do you manage it and how do you manage the process and how do you manage your time and that sort of thing. And if you've kind of already, you know, if you've already done a degree or something like that, you've, you've probably learned a lot of that stuff. Um, but if you're if you're not, um, then then I, I think the whole thing would just be bewildering, to be honest, because you you don't have by definition you don't have that kind of scaffolding and support that we all need to kind of help us help us through that journey in the early stages. So, I mean, certainly the the research I've seen suggests that most of the people who do MOOCs and certainly complete MOOCs already have already quite highly educated. Um, mm. So it's a sort of yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's it's kind of a nice thing to have, but. Um, but in terms of is this really what's going to um, empower, you know, uh, empower lots of people all over the world? It, you know, it really isn't, and it really hasn't. Um, this is what we've seen. It, 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 it's, it's, it just throws up so many questions and very few answers, doesn't it? Because, um, it, you know, as, as we know, not just education, but brands expect, you know, sort of people who consume brands expect a community around those brands mm -hmm. and, and uh, education. Every, everybody who um, takes any kind of course, whether it's in school or at university or whatever, um, they expect some kind of community, that there's some kind of learning community to form around, around that uh, learning experience or that qualification, don't they? Um, yeah. So don't they all end up being like a dinner party that runs out of control? Um, I mean, they can do. I, I, I suppose maybe that's why people start forming sort of private groups. And um, maybe, maybe I, mean, I haven't really thought of this before, but is that is that why is that why things like WhatsApp groups are perhaps taking over from you know Facebook and, and that sort of thing? That that actually it, it can work quite nicely having a sort of controlled group of people having a conversation rather than just a sort of free for all. I think um, I mean it's not it's not something I, I haven't um, I haven't done very much sort of sort of teaching in universities in a conventional university setting, but I, I gather that is an issue of sort of yes, you've got your forums on the VLE, but actually the students have probably got their own Facebook group or WhatsApp group or whatever, so that that's that's where they'll be doing their chat. Yeah, um, I mean, 
just take take a, a, a minor step back, but it's still sort of moving things forward. And, and uh, also, it's um, the idea of digital literacy. So you mentioned before that you, you know it, you can't really thrive on a MOOC unless you've already got some kind of uh, digital competency and knowledge, and so yeah. on. But um, can we try to clarify where you are in defining what digital literacy is? In fact, if, if I could just read, people who are listening to this can hear me flicking through your paper, hopefully. Uh, there you go. Um, so uh, you referred to uh, Sharp and Beetham's 2010 uh, model of digital literacy, didn't you? And that's got access and awareness at the bottom and then skills and practices and then at the apex, it's identity, I think is right. Yep. And yep. then you have, I am, these questions, I am, sorry, statements, I am, I do, I can, and I have. Um, so given that this was a, a two or three years ago now, um, wh where do you stand on this idea of digital literacy? Um, so, well, I mean, there's a couple of things there. I mean, I, I, we, we've multiplied these terms, haven't we? <laughs> and, and, and actually in, in doing, in, in, in sort of researching this area, you sort of, you, you sort of look, there's, there's a body of work around um, you know, digital literacy, and then there's a body of work around digital competence, and there's a body of work around digital fluency, and uh, it, it's um, that there, there are there may be nuances in in how people think about them differently, but but ultimately they're all you know being good with technology, right? Um, mm. So so I, so I think one of the things is we we have um, we have confused it somewhat, I think. Um, but what I but I, I suppose for some sometimes the concept of of something like digital literacy or or digital skills is is, is equated with um, is equated with um, being able to use software, mm. you know, um, and and you know especially particular types of software and and actually I mean that that's part of it but it's but it's really not the whole of it. Um, I mean I mean I, I I still very much like the um, the pyramid model. Um, the 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 beta and sharp model, um, and actually when I, I I sort of presented some of this research at an, at an alt conference once, and realised Helen Beaton was in the audience, <laughs> you know, so, mm -hmm. so so no pressure there, but uh, she was very nice about it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I, I think it, I separate out digital literacy, um, the, the identity practices, skills, access to ways. It just it just makes a lot of sense to me, and I feel like I can translate that quite readily into examples and and illustrations. And the other thing I like about this model is that a lot of um, the sort of definitions and models around this talk about a bit about what digital literacy is or, and what sort of headings it falls under. Mm. And um, this is one of the few that really talks about the process or, or sheds some light on the process of de developing digital literacy, um, which is something that I think is still something that's um, somewhat under-researched, to be honest. And you said before that, in a way, we're multiplying questions and multiplying definitions too. So it, it occurred to me today that uh, perhaps what we're all doing is not not just looking for a paradigm shift, but looking for any kind of paradigm to cling on to in the absence of um, paradigms that feel contemporaneous. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. I, I mean, to be honest, I mean, partly because of the, the, the work I'm doing now, which is more... Um, I guess is more in, in professional settings rather than educational settings. Um, we tend to talk about digital skills more mm. um, rather than digital literacy, because um, that, that, that's language that resonates very readily with, um, with, with employers and so on. And, you know, it's still not a million miles away. Um, and actually, um, since, since this paper, I've, I've come across the work of Van Dyck and Van Dersen, um, two Dutch academics on digital skills who've done, you know, 
really really comprehensive research and, and put together sort of an interesting an interesting model it's not the pyramid actually but it's an interesting model of um um, of digital skills but the, the distinction that the particular distinction they make that I find really useful is between um, operational digital skills and strategic digital skills hmm. um, so whereas operational skills is, is what they call button knowledge it's um it's okay you know, which button do I push to make something happen uh, and it's you know I don't mean to be flippant about it, 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 it it's um it, it can be it can be quite a complex advanced skill I mean it could be you know how do I write a how do I write a program to build a, a data model that's going to do a really, really whizzy, sophisticated piece of data analysis? You know, it, it could be mm. quite an advanced thing, but it's still, how do I get the tool to do something? And then the strategic digital skills is, how do I use technology to achieve something? So how do I, how do I use technology better to achieve personal or professional goals that I've got? Um, and that's actually that's quite hard to do unless you've got the operational skills right because you need to have some appreciation of what the technology can do and how it does it but but it is does require a sort of higher order of thinking because you've got to be clear about what it is you're trying to do so i guess if i think about the data science example it's more um you know we've got a business problem around i don't know supply chain or retention or whatever it is and then it's okay how can i figure out what data we could analyze that would help with this and what analysis could i do that would be useful and you know how can i generate some results that that, that the organization could use um, and these things get muddled up um, in my experience they, they when there's some um, that that distinction between those two is is not always maintained um, so for example we talk about the digital skills gap a lot and if i look at um, reports and so on that and things have been written about the digital skills gap most of the time what it seems to be getting at is we don't have enough data scientists and cybersecurity professionals and and ai professionals um and yeah i mean maybe we don't but but for me that's not that's not the, the sum total of the digital skills gap the, the more the, the more widespread digital skills gap is um the the level of skills that regular people have if it's want of a better mm -hmm. term that, that that ordinary people in ordinary jobs um, using technology how are they able to make best use of that technology and that's something that's not so often talked about i don't i find mm. okay i mean it's lovely to hear it's lovely to hear just how how much you've moved on in since our last conversation too uh, in terms of what you're 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 working the the, the i suppose the um learning culture that you're part of but also the skills that you've uh, developed and the what you've been reading upon and writing about too so um lovely to hear that that progress in two years um because it was two years wasn't it when we first started talking about I think this it was yeah scary yeah <laughs> really scary um Finally, then, if it's okay, Daniel, mm -hmm. can we, um, if somebody's um, thinking about getting started uh, as an autoethnographer or, get, or writing an autoethnographic um, paper, um, what advice would we would we give to them? I'll start you off, shall I? Don't give up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't give up is a good one. Um, yeah, and I, I suppose building on that, you know, is is about a need for patience. Um, mm. and, and I guess that's you know any any sort of research involves that, but um, but if you are generating your own um, your own data, for want of a better term, then then it does require quite a lot of patience to keep that keep that generation um, going. Mm. Um, yeah, 
Um, and what about the, I mean, what, what has constituted data for you then? So your blogs were qualitative data, weren't they? Yeah. So, 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 so I, I kind of, as I was looking at auto, autothography projects, I realized I'd had this blog that I'd been maintaining for eight years. And, um, and actually that was, that, that constituted pretty good data because that's, that's what I'd written at the time. It was, it was in written format. I didn't have to rely on memory. Um, and therefore, and, you know, therefore it was worth looking at. And I guess I was, I was, um, I, I found it very rewarding the, the extent to which I was able to piece together patterns, um, mm -hmm. which weren't weren't evident to me at the time at all. Um, but but with hindsight going through it, that, that I I could do. Um, you I guess using sort of qualitative research methods, right? Um, yeah. Using using um, coding and, and identifying themes and so on um, enabled me to to identify this stuff that. Um, that, that, that only became clear with hindsight. So it's, um, I guess, I guess part of the advice would be be open to what, what's going to come out of that. Hmm. I, well, I think um, what really helped me once, once I'd actually got lots of um, qualitative data down, once I got lots of writing and visual narratology and stuff like that, some images, um, what really helped me was Brown and Clark and, and looking at mm. thematic analysis because um because this idea, when I was sort of finding my way with research methods, um, the idea of grounded theory just seemed anathema to me. The idea of you know, the, these uh, ideas arising from the qualitative data, uh, it seemed, rightly or wrongly, it seemed disingenuous that this, this that I would I would actually declare that, you know, that, that this arose from the data. And it just seemed to me that being honest about the the role of the researcher in, in, in creating meaning from the data and, um, you know, analyzing it with, with understanding that there is a, a human who's who's been who's at the center of this research just seemed a lot more appealing to me no absolutely and and uh yeah i, I totally agree with that um, um you know very much um agree that we, we can't pretend to objectivity you know in this sort mm. of thing and 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 it, it can be quite dangerous to sort of claim that you have objectivity because you just don't we're all human and we all we all have our perspectives and so on and you know it's, as as Braun and Clark advocate, it's about being reflexive about those assumptions and sort of where you're at and, and what you're bringing to the research. Thank you, Daniel Clark. Next time on EdTech Innovators, it's Victoria James talking to us about the wonderful EdPuzzle, the video learning platform. Until then, see you later.